If you enjoy our podcast, please consider supporting Glass Tire. All of the money we raise, since we are a nonprofit, goes right back into our coverage of Texas's art and artists. Our coverage is supported thanks to readers and listeners like you. If you would like to contribute, you can do so at glasstire.com forward slash donate. Thanks so much and enjoy today's show. Hello and welcome to Art Dirt. This is a podcast where we at Glass Tire talk about topical art topics. I am Brandon Zeck. I'm William Saradet. I'm Jessica Fuentes. And this week we're we're taking stock a little bit. We're taking some time and we're looking at the year. Um, this is something we have started to do every year now. It's partially inspired by every year Glass Tire and its contributors put together a best of with little capsule reviews of either the best art exhibitions or events or general cultural and life things that they think of um, that really stuck with them for the year. And we like to talk about it on the podcast, too. Um, We're not going to trot a lot of the same ground. Um, Instead of talking about individual exhibitions or individual events, we're going to be talking a little more about the general overarching things that really stuck out to us in life, in culture, and in the art world this year. Um, all three of us, Jessica, William, and myself, we all put together lists of the things that really left their mark. And uh, we're going to go through those. But I, I want to start with, I think the thing that we all shared on the list was the tanking of cryptocurrency. And by way of that, kind of the tanking of NFTs. Um, I feel like in 2021 we saw a big crypto boom along with everyone else and we felt some of the effects of it in Texas. Um, And in 2022, it started to get a little more quiet and then it got to the point where you didn't hear about crypto or NFTs in any of the art publications anymore. Um, And I feel like once, you know, once the publications that focus a little more on market trends stop writing about it, that's a signal that the death has happened. Uh, Jessica and William, what are, what are y'all's takes on this? Consumers this year definitely found NFTs to be um, what they are, which is speculative assets. They found them to be risky. Uh, the bottom seems like it fell out. The price has dropped and it has not returned. These things are tied to the crypto market by design. Um, so they follow the alleged quote unquote crypto winter that we're in. Um, Dan Olson, a film critic on YouTube, he's been around for a long time. Um, some of some of our listeners may even know his face from some of his popular series. He kind of uncharacteristically dropped a magnum opus, two plus hour long video essay about what NFTs are, how they relate to the subprime. A mortgage crisis of 2008. It's a really, really fascinating watch, not just because it's informational, but because it's kind of, I almost see it as a performance lecture in itself. And I've been telling everyone I can this year to watch it. Um, it helped me understand things uh, that are happening in the crypto space. And also it's just like 
you wouldn't necessarily expect a two hour long essay to be watchable from start to finish, but that's what everyone says about Dan Olson's video. Line goes up. Jessica, what was your take on it? I mean, were you ever an NFT person to begin with? No, you know, I I really wasn't um, interested in NFTs. I don't know why it didn't really draw me in. Um, And I love hearing William talk about um, the deeper um, world behind NFTs and the crypto market. Um, But for me, I, I think it's also partially just that you know, technology changes, things grow and move, and people are on to the next thing, which is AI-generated art. That has been kind of the thing that has been capturing people's imagination this year. Do we only have space for one internet-generated, internet-based thing? Because last year, and maybe the beginning of this year, it was NFTs. Now it's AI-generated art and things like mid-journey and all these things that are automatic AI-generated prompts. Um, I mean, I even know there's a Houston artist, uh, Aaron Perizet, who has a show at McLean Gallery right now, who they're analog paintings, but he was talking about how to create them, he put prompts into mid-journey for them. And it's like, he's one of the artists who... You know, being a very analog and uh, skills-based painter, he's one of the last people who I expected to bring up mid-journey when he was talking to me about his paintings. So it's kind of permeated everywhere now. Like, we know artists in Texas who are specifically making work using mid-journey, and it's a lot of artists who have been kind of technologically minded anyway, but it seems like something that can't be escaped right now. Yeah, the the onset of these applications like Midjourney and OpenAI, which have been in development for at least a couple years, but they've kind of reached commercial viability or pre-commercial viability this year. Um, immediately, every creative-minded person said, hey, what is this going to do to my viability in the marketplace if a computer can whip up a... Uh, you know, a Vermeer or a Caravaggio with just a couple button presses, like, what does that do for me? And then immediately the whiplash went the other direction. And we all learned there's this like vast, like semiotic value in these things. If you want to know what something is going to look like, or if you can't quite figure out where you're going with something and you want it to get visualized for you, these tools end up being super valuable. Um, so we, we've seen kind of both sides of it this year where everyone was like, we need to shut this down right now or we're all going to be out of a job. And then on the other side, creatives and commercially minded people alike have said, you know what, there's a lot of utility to this. Um, let's not throw it out with the bathwater, so to speak. Well, and I think too, for me personally, the idea of NFTs and cryptocurrency and all of that feels so abstract um, and outside of the realm of what I want to spend my time on. Um, but this AI generated art um, has been so much more accessible, right? We've seen apps come out just just recently over the last couple of weeks. I feel like all of my friends on Facebook have been turning their profile pictures into these AI-generated avatars, um, which, again, kind of saw people saying, like, hey, why are you spending $5 turning your pictures into this when you could spend $5 on your local artist friend's uh, work? Um, 
And then kind of the the other side of that as well is of people being excited to see these uh, various kind of takes on their face and their appearance. Um, but I, I just feel like the AI generated art has been a lot more accessible than NFTs were as well. Um, so maybe that has lended to um, to its explosion. Accessibility and also the fact that it's been in popular media. Like, not that NFTs weren't in popular media. Like, we all saw all of the stories about how people were paying millions of dollars for essentially JPEGs and those made for good headlines. But with the accessibility of the AI-generated stuff, it going into popular media is maybe more substantial because it means maybe it can have longer legs than the NFT boom did. Um, Like, I think about John Oliver, who in his popular HBO show his uh, kind of finale capstone of the season was about like mid mid journey prompts that people had put in and him finding himself on or generated images of himself on mid journey. Um, So the idea of things from the art world or from the creative world kind of creeping into popular media and then blowing up as a part of it kind of leads me into something that we also saw this year, which was, you, listener, you may not remember that it was this year because it feels so long ago, but the whole scammer Anna Delvey culture blow up happened in like February. Um, And that felt like, at this point, it almost feels like it was a flash in the pan. Like I keep saying headlines about her, um, you know, showing it Art Basel or, you know, whatever. But I feel like art issues or, you know, issues that those of us who are involved in art are looking at um, are being picked up maybe a little more, or at least in the last year, they were being picked up more in popular media, which was a really interesting thing to see. This kind of uh, also goes into something that's really happened over the last couple weeks. Um, All the episodes are finally out, but... Um, the Death of an Artist podcast, where Helen Molesworth, formerly a curator in Los Angeles, um, she goes into the story of Ana Mendieta, who is an artist um, that's starting to gain more recognition, but she was the wife of Carl Andre. There's a whole story around it. She was, um, many people think, murdered by Carl Andre. And this is a podcast that's telling her story through a popular podcast company. Um, and making it more accessible, which, Jessica, do you have thoughts about that? I know you listened to it recently. It's a really interesting concept for a podcast, like a popular media podcast to explore. I found it really interesting because I tend to listen to um, murder mystery crime podcasts. Um, And so to see this kind of art, art history story kind of played out in that way um, and taking advantage of what is now like a a more popular medium to tell these stories. I thought that was a really interesting move. Um, And I wonder if it, I wonder how effective it has been in getting um, more people aware of this story, because it is something that I feel like going, you know, to art school and whatnot, of course, like I heard kind of, rumors of um what had happened between 
what might have happened between Carl Andre and his wife. Um, but I never really had any further information about it, um, nor did I really know where to look. It just sometimes would be brought up and uh, glossed over. And so I really enjoyed being able to get more of that information um, and to learn more the ins and outs of the story. Helen Molesworth kind of foregrounds the conversation in episode one where she gives context about who she is, her role within the art community. Like you said, Brandon, she was a major curator and how even for her, it was difficult to find like the political seams around this story, meaning like no one wanted to talk about it and it was hard to get in period. It was hard to get past that initial wall. And I thought that was like a relevant way of starting the story because so much of the story has to do with silence and being edged out. Um, And it's just a good reminder that they're kind of, there's always politics behind the art, intra politics, infra politics. Um, And not that, Every show needs to be like contextualized to such a degree, but it was it was just sort of refreshing to get like a holistic view of what was behind the people and their work um, at the center of this story. Like it's I feel like it's something we've seen more and more with, you know, very popular and highly attended art instagram friendly things like i feel it kind of started with the kusama infinity rooms and the lines that were around the block in uh in chelsea whenever they were you know in in new york city and art galleries but the popularization of certain weird elements of the art world that normally would just kind of be happening in Backpage conversations of art rags is a really interesting trend, and I don't exactly know what's propelling it other than the fact that some of it is just kind of not in a way that's kind of bastardizing the story, but it's just sensationalizable. Like the Anna Delvey thing is sensationalizable. The fact that there's an accepted, um, alleged but acquitted murderer who's a very popular artist is sensationalizable. Um, And the podcast itself doesn't sensationalize it, but the idea of the story could be sensationalized, if that makes any sense. I also just think that it's that maybe some of these stories are finally finding the proper outlet for them um, and and larger audiences that are already connected to those outlets. I mean... um, Anna Delvey on Netflix as a um, bingeable story coming out around the same time as The Tender Swindler um, is very much that same kind of story of of cons and people getting away with things or, or people being held accountable for them. It's playing into the media of these kind of Netflix shows that are bingeable and people can sit down and watch them over a weekend. Um, and the same thing with Death of an Artist is is playing into this format that has been used for a few years now of these kind of crime podcasts, um, true story podcasts where people are tuning in every week to hear what happens next. To be able to find and connect with these wider audiences who are already primed to hear these stories, I think is part of that. Yeah, that's an interesting take. And I think... 
well, I, I think that kind of propels itself again into like the climate protests that we've seen this year. Those have been a major part, and those were something that I was particularly thinking about in terms of an, a year-end wrap-up. The fact that they're using art as a vehicle to get where they're going has been really interesting, even though I think some of their more successful actions haven't involved art at all. But I, I think people are figuring out how to, <laughs> whether they're involved in the art world or not, they're figuring out how to deal with media and they're figuring out how to get their stories out there in a way that actually resonates with people. Sometimes using art as a vehicle, sometimes using other vehicles for their art story that hasn't gotten attention before. Groups like Just Stop Oil, which is one of the groups that we're kind of implicitly mentioning here, uh, but it is among the most visible, have really targeted some of the most blue chip works of the entire canon of Western art, at least. And I think that could possibly just speak to both their, these organizations, like how fervent they are about the issue of addressing climate change and putting pressure on somebody, not simply just chanting outside on the sidewalk. Uh, but also it, it speaks to some kind of like, it speaks to some kind of ratcheting up of how we as a collective group of people in the society see the value in art. Um, we know that art is a vehicle for value and it must be protected on its own merits. But there's also groups that are saying like this whole system that we've built needs to have its structural foundational economic principles um, examined and judged. Um, shifting gears a little bit, uh, Jessica, William, what are other things that stood out to you this year? Was there anything Texas specific? You know, I feel like a lot of what we've been talking about has kind of been the larger trends. What about what y'all have seen within the state? Y'all have traveled quite a bit. Between the trip that Jessica and I took to the Panhandle and a more recent solo trip I took to Galveston, um, both of those places, I, I don't want to say they're like locked in time, but they definitely took me away from my home, which is Dallas. Uh, Brandon, you're in Houston, and Jessica is also in DFW. You know, we live in kind of like the big urban areas. It's been so interesting to see what like values that the other parts of the state have and how art is a consistent and reliable part of those communities. Um, the Panhandle is a pretty large region. There's multiple cities included in that, of course. Galveston is one distinct place. Um, both of those areas have, you know, different legacies in terms of how they were founded versus where they are now. But it's just been interesting to travel outside of the major metro areas and get to meet fellow Texans that have been working, producing, curating, and showing art uh, as long as anyone else has. Yeah, Um and I'll say to you, you know, one of the things that was exciting about the Panhandle trip that uh, we went on is being able to see the growth of arts communities. Um, and these are places that I will definitely say I was not very familiar with before. Being able to spend time in each of these cities and to hear from the people who are involved in those 
arts spaces um, about the growth that their institutions and that their art scenes have seen over the last few years um, was really exciting. It was interesting to kind of see and hear about some of the big changes that happened this year, whether it was from longtime gallerists retiring, like Charles Adams in Lubbock, um, or if it was, you know, other organizations who are starting to see their donor base um, pass on um, and are struggling or starting to see a struggle of, you know, how they'll continue to maintain their organizations moving forward. Um, just kind of seeing a, a big change right now with um, maybe some of our art leaders who have been in and around and keeping things going for a long time, seeing them um, kind of step back and seeing space for new people to, to take on the reins. Yeah, I feel like there's always an interesting kind of cyclical thing whenever people are phased out either through death or just because they are deciding to take a step back and let other people emerge or let other people kind of have their time in the light. Um, I almost feel like over the past couple of years because of COVID and everything and because, well, one of the things I saw this year was, I mean, everyone is out of COVID, like COVID still exists, but we're kind of just pretending that it doesn't in many ways. Um, we're having events again. We're having openings again. We're having talks again. We're having parties again. Like we're, we're back at full force. I think coming out of the COVID years and going back into a year that's full force is going to, or has already, and is going to continue to kind of impact people in very specific ways like it's going to either show people that yes they want to go back and want to dedicate the next you know couple years to this or it's going to show them that they really kind of like not having the constant grind of running a space or running a gallery or producing work or you know all of the various things that come with being a very active participant in an art community um or supporting work um so I think I, I, I think we haven't seen as much of those decisions happening this year as I thought we might, but I could see them propelling into the next couple years, just people deciding how they really want to navigate either going or not going back to the way life used to be. Um, a trend this year, I don't know if it was a trend for anyone else. It was a trend for me. Um, and maybe it was partially inspired by the kind of back to normal, full force, everything. Um, I, it was really nice to see so much art this year. Like the fact that people were putting on shows again and, uh, were hosting events means that I feel like I saw more art this year than I have in the last couple. But I feel like I mean, maybe because seeing art is almost kind of like a muscle, like the more you do it, the easier it is to continue to do. I feel like I found myself revisiting old exhibition catalogs and revisiting old exhibitions more this year, even than I have in the past couple. Um, and I would have thought it would have been the other way around, like during lockdown, you know, you you look through art books to kind of help uh, help tickle the brain because you can't go see the real thing. But I, I feel like by seeing so much and by engaging with people and talking about art, it made me want to look at more art and read more art writing. So like I've been a fan of 
picking up a few nice, good, meaty exhibition catalogs of shows, mostly that I didn't see, um, just to kind of revisit them and see what they were about. Yeah, I would definitely say uh, the same is true for me. I've found that this year I've seen a lot more art than I had previously, and I've also went and grabbed a few extra art books than I really have before in the past and have been spending more time with them. So before we wrap up, is there anything else y'all want to add that were major takeaways for you this year? Um, I can just add that in general across the U.S., I felt like we saw a lot of art museum workers striking and unionizing, which is just a holdover really from things that have been happening over the last couple of years. And while we didn't necessarily see that in Texas, we did see some issues play out with Mexicarte where the staff took over the um, social media account and made some accusations, which I think, um, though that didn't play out the same way, was still in the same kind of vein. Yeah, I'm just looking at my copy of Hot, Cold, Heavy Light, 100 Art Writings by Peter Sheljall. Um, He passed away this year, uh, which comes a year, year and a half after his piece that he published in The New Yorker on dying which is both a beautiful work of art, a kind of a uh, autobiography, at least enough for the reader to kind of contextualize who he's been, what he's been spending his life's work on uh, all these years. So that's definitely just something to mourn a little bit this year. On a lighter note, this year I made more of an intention to use public transit um, wherever possible. And it's a little altruistic, uh, but at the same time, it was partially just a curiosity to see if it would lead to experiencing a car-centric place like Texas, um, if it would lend a different perspective. And it absolutely has. I take DART in Dallas when I can. It goes downtown. That makes art viewing easy. But there's other metro systems, specifically the metro in Houston, which I took earlier this fall to go to the MFAH. Um, And I'm looking forward to expanding that uh, art viewing practice to other parts of the state, possibly other parts of the world in the future. And yeah, it's been it's been a long, eventful year. It's been a good year. and I, I'm looking forward to everything that 2023 brings. Yeah. And we will, I'm sure there's going to be a ton of unexpected stuff come up in the next year. So we'll keep you all listeners uh, abreast of that. Thank you for listening. Thank you for taking the year through with us. Um, definitely go and read Glass Tire's Best of 2022. We have some wonderful contributors who threw in their picks for the year, the best things they saw. Um, All three of us did as well. Um, We'll have something coming out pretty soon about our favorite art books of the year. It'll be some old, some new. Um, And yeah, we won't be back before the holidays. So have a happy holiday, a Merry Christmas, whatever you celebrate. And we'll talk to you in the new year. And until then, uh, there is some stuff happening over the holidays, so check out the event listings and go see some art. Go see some art. Go see some art.
This podcast was recorded by Glass Tire and edited by William Saradet. Copyright Glass Tire 2022.